reading first from the Gospel of Matthew, 12, the 16th chapter, excuse me, beginning with verses 13 and reading through 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barzona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. And then from the Gospel of Luke, in the 12th chapter, reading verses 7 through 9. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. We began a, a summer series called The Crown and the Kingdom, and you've heard from Cindy, and, and you've heard from Troy, and you've heard from Nick. They've addressed certain different parts of that, especially parts about God the Father, and also about the kingdom, and certainly that's what this is about. We can't talk about the kingdom of God the, without talking about the the very essence of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, nor can we talk about the work of the God without talking about the kingdom and our understanding of it as a place where the rule of God exists, where the love of God is completed. And so I'm going to begin today to talk about this question, who is Jesus, and then for a couple of three weeks I'm going to talk about who is Jesus, perhaps the other Jesus, not the mo most familiar Jesus, but perhaps for some a less familiar Jesus, or maybe even, for some, an unknown Jesus. And you say, well, how would that be? I direct your attention to what the children answered, as, as how of that, what to say when someone asks you the question, who is Jesus? You can come at that a lot of different ways, right? You could have a lot of different kinds of answers. And that was also true in the day in which the text was written about this conversation that Jesus had with those first disciples. I think the first thing we need to think about in this text is to contemplate the question itself. What, who do the people say that I am? It's important to Jesus, and it's important to the Father, to know what the people of the, of the world are saying about who he is. I would say... and. Extend that just a little bit to say that it's critical to the church. It's critical to the church to also understand how people outside the church answer the question, who do people say that Jesus is? 
really sometimes I feel like that we're like the carpenter who drives that nail in straight as an arrow and he keeps pounding on that nail until there's a big bruise on the wood. You know the kind of carpenter I'm talking about, right? You not only drive it into the wood to hold it in place, but then you set it by knocking it in a little bit more. Well, sometimes I think we, we knock on that same nail, that nail of Jesus is our Savior, to the point where perhaps that might not be the most helpful knowledge that people are looking for when they're not yet a part of the kingdom. That's why I want to talk about this Jesus from a little bit of different perspective over the next few weeks. Because sometimes we take for granted that other people know fully who Jesus is, and yet their responses here show that they certainly didn't know right. What did they say? He's, oh, some saying you're John the Baptist. Come back to life. At this point, John is already dead. Some say that you're Elijah. We don't know how he died or where he went, so we, we think you're Elijah coming back. And some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. In other words, there was a lot going on out there in their world coming from people who really didn't know who Jesus was. Now, the interesting thing is, even though these disciples had been hearing Jesus teach quite a bit at this point, they still were not for sure either, based upon what Jesus had said or done, they had not come to conclusions about what that meant in regard to who Jesus was. And in fact, when Peter comes up with the right answer, you are the Christ, or in this interpretation in Matthew, the, the, the Messiah, same thing basically as Christ, the Son of God. When Peter says that, he's not applauded because he got the lesson Jesus had been teaching them, but rather Jesus said, you know this because it was revealed to you by God. So when we start to talk to individuals or persons out there to explain to them who God is, sometimes we want them to hear the facts or the story and then we want them to get it, right? I mean, we want them to get it because after all, we've explained it clearly. Jesus is a Savior. Come to save you from your sins. Just believe it. Take my word for it for nothing else, right? Just believe it. But they really don't, do they? Not when you say it the first time. It doesn't have enough context for them because their life has not been lived in the church environment and many of them have not been lived in families who speak the name of Jesus in appropriate ways. They may not have even heard the word of God, uh, God's name mentioned as God in appropriate ways, though they probably have heard it, yes, but just maybe not in ways that are helpful or certainly not in ways that are instructive of anything we want them to believe. So this answering this question, who is Jesus, is important. And Jesus says, Peter, by your confession, that's who I'm going to build my church around, around people who have the confession that comes from God. That gets my attention in that passage of Scripture. Flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but the Spirit of God revealed it to you, and you, you know it because to you it came from God. Whenever we're trying to talk to a person, we give them information about stories in the Scripture, about our own life experiences. But then it, inevitably, at some point in their life, if they're going to really understand who Jesus is, they have to hear the, the, the voice of God coming to them in whatever way God speaks to them and say, who do you say that Jesus is? And God has given us the power, not just us, but every person the power to respond and say, 
Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior. But it takes a lot of information and a lot of experience before they're ready to hear that. Peter himself and all these Jewish men had been hearing about God for all their lives. It was not an unknown topic to them. Jesus was just an unknown expression of who God was to them because he was in the flesh. We are trying to bring back to people's understanding in the world in which we live, oftentimes in a blank context. Now, here's the, here's the part that really makes it dicey. Not only do they not know who God is, but they may have a lot of ideas in their heads and minds about who they think that others say Jesus is, and they're not accurate. Have you ever had somebody come and tell you who Jesus is, and you wanted to go, uh, actually, no, that's not who Jesus is. You know, some people get the idea that Jesus is the one who heals us from all our sins. And we say it in ways sometimes that we mean it. We may say that Jesus is the one who not just saves us from our sins, but he heals us because of his awesome power. And we forget to qualify that. We would give the impression that God has the power, which he does, and that God is love, which he is. And so, therefore, it just sounds to the normal person that that means that anybody who gets sick, God can miraculously heal. Now, my question to you is, does he? Now, my, I have the answer to that question. You'll be glad to know. Uh, the answer is yes. God always heals us, either through medicine or through the miraculous reality of our own bodies that he created for us. Or he heals us through death. He always heals us eventually. But not in the immediacy. We still get sick. We still suffer from disease on this earth. And that's a hard thing for people who don't have a background of Jesus or God to understand. In fact, dare I say that it's hard for you to understand too. When my father had a heart attack at 50 years old, it was hanging on by a thread to life. And I was sitting outside the hospital at the ripe old age of 21 or so, filled with a lot of the things that I thought about God. And one of them was that God should take care of my people. And my daddy was one of my people. So I shook my fist at God out there in the middle of the night and said, how dare you allow my daddy to be lying in that bed nearly dead. Fortunately, God is merciful. He didn't slap me down or anything like that. He didn't paralyze me. He didn't shout from heaven back at me and, how, and say, how stupid of you to question who I am. He didn't say any of those things. But I struggled. And I prayed for my daddy to survive. And my daddy did survive. God was good. And he was healed, but he continued to struggle with his health. There was no miraculous end to his suffering or his struggle. There were a lot of reasons for that, and I could go into that, but that's really not about the sermon, so I'll leave it alone. Who is Jesus, the Son of the living God? Now, even it's spoken to these people in a religious context, to the people of God at that particular time in history, which were the Jews in Israel, Jesus was asking them who he was, and when they said the Messiah, even then, even though that was revealed by God, they attached to it false understanding. Because to them, the Messiah 
the Christ for them all, was going to come back to earth and redeem Israel and make Israel a military and political power again. That was the work of the cross. Even though he had correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, he had the wrong meaning attached to it. And that's easily done. In fact, I thought of a lot of things about God when I was young that I believed were true, that were not true, but I was young. I still had to grow. I imagine a lot of you sitting here today would say, maybe with me, that now that I'm much older, there's still things that I'm learning about Jesus and about the Father and how the Father works. It's not a simple test where you get six answers and they're always correct. And as we will talk about more in the coming weeks, there are, uh, are things that are very important about who Jesus is that sometimes are hardly spoken about at all in the church in a way that can be understood. But suffice it to know that today we just want to talk about what does it mean to be able to answer and to know who Jesus is. Now, who do you say that I am? The children could have said a lot of things, don't you? Here's my short list of, of how people in our culture and age talk about Jesus. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is Christ, our Savior. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Jesus is the one who loves me, everyone, and as one of the children said, uh, all the time, forever and ever. Great answer, wasn't it? We know that answer. We, it, it's embedded in us. Jesus is love, even as the Father is love. Jesus forgives us of our sins. We talk about it all the time. We count on it. We rely on it. Another one that I, I, I think I heard them say, but I'm, I'm not sure my memory is, is vacation affected. Uh, Jesus loves me just as I am. We say that a lot of times to people, especially people who are trying to find Jesus. They'll come to us and say, well, I don't know if Jesus can love me or not. And we say, yes, Jesus can. Jesus already does love you. He loves you just the way you are. That kind of completes my short list. People who have been going to church very much at all or have read much of the scriptures or have paid much of attention to the way people talk about Jesus know those things, right? Are there any of those that are... The, or that contradictory or that bothered us that much to say that Jesus saves us, that he's our Savior, that he's God's Son. We might even say he was a man that walked around in a particular date and time in Israel, that, in Galilee. That it would be important for us to say that because he was, he was a man of the flesh, wasn't he? But, but even when we say those things about him, we have not exhausted who Jesus was. And in fact, if we're not careful, we may have cut away from some things that Jesus also is without really intending to. It's like somebody coming up and asking me, who is Sally? Well, first of all, according on what day you asked me that, exactly how I might answer you, right? <laughs> see? See? She's getting braver in her old age. Well, she's this woman who, let's see, I shouldn't say this probably, but oh, why not? Who at 17 fell in love and got married at 18 with the catch of her life, right? <laughs> right. I was so wise when we met at the age of 20 and almost 20 and 21 when we got married that, you know, you just couldn't, you couldn't contain all that I knew about life. I was so smart. And so wise. Perfect husband in all ways. Even as she was the perfect wife. 
right? But the woman I thought I married that day in March the 10th, 1973, could not be explained with what I knew about her on March the 11th, 1973. I better understood it on March the 10th, 1974, and even better on 1975, and even better in 1985, and then on some days after 1985. Yeah, you're supposed to laugh. Thank you. Your laugh or not laughing tells me what I'm going to receive when I get home. But in that process of me understanding Sally, I could only understand her as a 21-year-old when I met her. Even as a child can only understand Jesus at the age they are when we talk to them about Jesus. You can't tell them everything they need to know about Jesus when they're seven. You don't go into great detail about the cross. and You don't show them Mel Gibson's movie about the cross. It would terrify them. There is a time and a place when they will have grown up enough to see that movie to understand it. But it's not for them then. When a person first becomes a Christian, Christians have to be very careful what they share with people who are new Christians. Some things they can't yet hear. And we can do great damage to them. Just like people who have suddenly become Christians have to be careful about how they tell their unchristian friends about what's happened to them because they'll convince their friends that they've gone nuts or run them away from the church or worse than yet if you don't get yourself right you're going to hell too you know because I just found it last week and right now you ought to get it because I'm 37 and I just now understood it but you need to get it right now right we can get very judgmental once we have Jesus and know who Jesus is in the sense that somebody else ought to come to that understanding at our level immediately it's the greatest problem in Sunday school classes that we try to take somebody and put them into a class where people have been together for maybe years and years and years. Maybe they got together as young adults, and maybe now 40 years later, after studying the Bible together for 40 years, a new couple comes into a class that just got saved a year before, and they walk into that class, and they're shell-shocked. They're hearing things about Jesus they never knew, they never understood, they never heard. They don't know how to do it. That's the reason churches start new classes, by the way, is to take people not by age but developmental-wise where they are in their faith because you cannot spill the whole tub all at once. And that's a problem when we try to do that. So I, I wanted to share that. But understanding who Jesus is and how important he is is very, very important. Let me give you one example. In 1969, remember the year? Some of you do. Some of you well, you're going to hear about something about it now. In 1969, there was a, a space mission called Apollo. And the mission was to put a man on Mars. No. How about the moon? I'm just checking to see if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It was a phenolic slip. Okay, so when they landed on the moon, Richard Nixon, filled with excitement at the great accomplishment that just had happened, was quoted as saying, are you ready for this? This is the greatest day since creation, exclamation point. Shortly thereafter, Billy Graham sent him a note to remind him that there was a little thing called Christmas and Easter that had happened since creation that were much more important than a man setting foot on the moon. 
In fact, they were so important that his coming divided the calendar of humanity, basically, between things that happened before Christ and things that happened after him. Now, if you think you're important in history, let me ask you, how many of you changed the calendar? That would be, I got it, right? You got it. Knowing who this man Jesus was stands to reason because he impacted the world more so than any other person before him and more so than any person since him. That's a fact. And knowing that he is that important a person can draw people to trying to understand who he is. If that could be accomplished, then they can feel drawn toward understanding who he is. But they can also get confused. For instance, in one of the books I bought years ago that I've been thumbing through lately, it's called The Other Jesus, written by Lloyd Ogilvie. And he says that Jesus is quite simply not the Jesus we have created because of our own perceived needs and because of our own personal agendas. Jesus is not, he says, simply the Jesus we've created out of our perceived needs or our own personal agendas. Jesus, he goes on to say, is not our errand boy. Jesus is not our personal genie to fix everything that's wrong in our life. Jesus is not just our 911 Jesus that, that we call when there's an emergency in our lives. And yet our society and many people in our churches spend most of their time talking about the Jesus who saves them, forgives them for all their sins, and takes care of all the messes that they make in their life. The problem with that is, first of all, the problem is that's not what the text says about the man. Jesus does all of those things, comes to us in our emergencies. Does, Jesus does care about the needs in our lives. But Jesus doesn't solve all of our problems without and wipe away all of our consequences for the bad decisions and mistakes we make, does he? And yet when people think that about Jesus, then they're angry as a 21-year-old Doug Miller when my father had a heart attack. It's your fault, God. Now get out here and heal him right now. The fact that he's been 50 pounds overweight for years and years doesn't have anything to do with this. The fact that he smoked a part of his life doesn't have anything to do with this. The fact that he keeps all of his emotions inside him instead of talking about what he's feeling doesn't have anything to do with an inner heart attack, right? Wrong. Daddy's sick, come fix it. Right now, please. We'll be soon enough. That's the nine and one Jesus that we love to talk about and we love to tell others about. About the Jesus who saved us from our sins. But Jesus does much more than just that. And in this book, he goes to 15 passages. There are some 150 according to some scholars or some 70 according to other scholars. He just picks out 15 passages that talks about another Jesus that people don't know as well as they thought. In fact, the title of his book is The Other Jesus. Another guy wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. His name is Philip Yancey, a more recent book. 
than the first one quoted, but still the topics are as good as they ever were. He said the Jesus that I came to know is not the Jesus I was taught in Sunday school. You know the Jesus who always comes with juice and cookies? He said sugar cookies because that's what he got where he was. The Jesus who always came in Sunday school, he grew up knowing and loving. The Jesus he saw in the picture of this guy dressed a certain way, looked a certain way, always smiling, looking real sweet and humble. Not only that Jesus existed, but there was one who existed in a lot of different ways. He said in short, and I quote what he says, Jesus was not the Mr. Rogers of faith. Now, you can tell the book was written a few years ago. You know, remember Mr. Rogers, the guy in the candy suit coat? I could hardly stand to watch him when my own kids were watching him. Why? Because he's just too sugary sweet. You know, he never got really bothered. He was always sweet and kind and never seemed to get perturbed about anything. I can imagine him seeing me as a five-year-old in mud up to my neck saying, Oh, you should not have done that, which was not the way my mother and father told me about it. You see, that sugary view of Jesus is really there, but that's not all there is to know about Jesus. It's the same guy that said, he who loves his father or mother or family more than me is not worthy to follow me. Same guy, but not the same sugar-coated sweetness where everything's going to be all right, don't worry about it pat you on the head kind of Jesus. No, a different kind of Jesus emerges in Scripture. This gentle, loving, never disturbed Jesus also becomes the judge of all humanity. This same Jesus is the one who told Peter, one of his favorites, to get behind him because he's acting like the devil. It's the same Jesus who scolded the disciples because they wanted to follow the same materialistic values as the rest of the world with power and prestige and follow him and be seated at his right and left. You see, you can't have just the Jesus of one part of the story. It all conditions each other. But when all we say is that Jesus loves us and forgives us for our sins, and we never talk about personal transformation or the servant model of trying to save the world or about loving others as much as we love ourselves, if we just accentuate the parts of the scripture that talks about this gentle, loving Jesus who accepts us as we are and leave us where we are, we are not telling everybody who the other Jesus really is. That's why it's so important as we preach and we teach that we preach the whole Bible. Some people do that. Some people don't. I could call names, but I'll be nice this morning. I've had three weeks off. I won't call names. But I could, and it's a popular set of sermons that this person preaches. They flock to hear him, and it's like getting a candy stick every Sunday. Well, guess what? Life's not like that, and neither is Jesus. Okay. Having go, going from that point, we come to the place where we ask ourselves the question then, where do we find out who Jesus is? We find out who Jesus is by process. A process of the study of the scriptures, listening to what others say about Jesus and comparing what they say, until we begin to learn piece by piece who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Remember that story I told you about that woman named Sally? She did exactly what I expected her to do after these 44 years last night. Michael Lou has turned into a fish in the swimming pool. 
it happens at a magic moment for most kids, and it just happened to her when she swam the leak to the pool and we all clapped. By the way, something Max is already doing at 11 months. He just loves to clap. He especially loves to clap when he does something funny, and he thinks everything he does is funny. I clapped last night when he had a piece of pizza he found somewhere, but somebody left loose, and he's walking now since vacation. And he had that piece of pizza, and he just had it flat up against his face. And he was just trying to eat that stuff off that pizza as best he could. He had grease all over him. Uh, that's Maddox, the 11-month-old, right? Sally, the not 11-month-old, was being warded by Michael Lou to come swim with her, come swim with her. Well, we, you know, we've been swimming a lot lately. <laughs> we've had a lot of swim time. But she went back over there last night to swim with, Sal, with Michael Lou. What happened? Exactly what I knew happen, would happen. She swam until the kids had to go in and get ready to go to bed because the mother made them at 7 o'clock. That's it. My uncle didn't want to quit. Truth be known, probably Sally didn't want to quit either. But boy, she had been swimming in that pool with him. She came home, got in the shower, came in, laid down on the couch. The show would have been on 10 minutes, and I looked over there. No, I wouldn't say she slept with her mouth open because that would be tacky. But let's just say... She exhausted herself, entertained the grandchildren, and it was predictable. But she had been tired that morning when she got up that she would go to bed like that at first opportunity. See, I know that little woman pretty well. And yes, she knows me pretty well for the good and the bad of that. The question is for you today is do you know Jesus that well? Not just Jesus the Savior. Not just Jesus, the one who loves me as I am, but also the Jesus who calls me into the best that I can be. The Jesus who wants for me what God wants for me. The Jesus who calls me not into a life of pleasing myself, but into a life of meeting the needs of the world. Do you love that Jesus too? Because you see, you can't just have part of Jesus. You've got to have all of Jesus if you want what Jesus has promised you. And so we're going to look closely at the scriptures to try and make sure that we have a full and rounded view of who Jesus is. Not a warped view. Does Jesus heal us? Yes, Jesus heals us. But does Jesus heal every person that's sick? No, he does not. Not except through a process and eventually through death. But we don't always get the physical healings we want on earth. We don't always get the jobs we want on earth that we pray for. We don't always live in, with abundance the way we pray for. And perhaps some of those things we pray for are not what Jesus is praying for us at all. And when we get what we want, it makes us happy. I'm so proud of the four young men that came down who are going on, the, on a high adventure trip. I'm proud of them for a very specific reason. I'm proud for them to be going on that trip because that trip is a, because it's called a high adventure trip, has a certain amount of hardship with it, a certain amount of risk with it, a certain amount of danger with it. And when they go, they go trusting in one another and in their leaders but most of all, trusting in the Christ of their faith to be with them. You see, the Jesus of history 
becomes the Christ of faith in theological terms. A lot of our more educated seminarians that Jesus, that Cindy, not Jesus, that Cindy was talking to and referring to, they want to separate the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. They want to separate it because it just can't be true to them. The things about the Jesus of earth are too many, there's too many miracles involved. There's too much stuff they can't understand. There are too many tensions where everything is not always the way it's supposed to be. So they simply want to separate them and take them apart. And in so doing, they do great damage to the faith that Jesus came to instill. Because life is all about tension. It's about the tension between love and judgment. It's about the tension between earthly blessings and earthly struggles. It's about the tension between knowing that you're saved and knowing that there's much more of you that needs to be saved. It's about the tension of living in the kingdom of God in the here and the now and knowing that its fullness has not yet come. It's about all of that. It's not just as simple as having a Christ outside of history and a Jesus the man inside because Jesus was both man and God. Jesus was the Christ while he was Jesus on earth. You say, well, that just doesn't make any sense. I know. And that's because all our minds are too small. We want to be able to fill up in our little heads all the things about God that are true. And it's just not possible. God is bigger than any of us or else God wouldn't be God. Wouldn't you hate to have a God that was just as smart? This is where I make fun of somebody. Anybody want to volunteer? You want to, oh, okay, Scott's going to volunteer. His son, you, little Joe's going to volunteer. What if God was only as smart as Scott Grigsby? Oh, we'd be up a world of hurt, huh, Scott? You know, we wouldn't want to worship a God like that. I find myself telling people that more and more today as they ask me, "Well, why doesn't God do such and such?" I said, "You know, one thing I learned a while back is I'll never fully understand God, and neither will you. That's what faith is all about." It's about believing and trusting and following, even when you don't fully understand it. And so those scouts who are willing to go on a trip, they're believing and they're trusting in God to be with them, whatever happens. And we're believing and trusting in the same thing. Because we know things do happen on this earth that we wish would not. I don't want to face any of that stuff alone. And as much as I love you, I don't want to face it just with you either. I need Jesus. And my book tells me that Jesus will be with me. Whether I'm in the Philippines doing ministry with a bunch of street kids, whether I'm looking for a way to try and buy shoes that they need and don't have, while I'm trying to do work with them in the Philippines, while I'm trying to convince them that Americans love them, even though they, it's not shown fruit in their physical lives that they try to live in the Philippines in many ways or in the dredges of the cities in our own country. I keep telling them that it's true. Who is Jesus? You don't have time for me to answer that question for you. 